Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I've decided to do a new podcast. This one will be called Brown People, a podcast where I speak to politicians, pundits, mothers, and thinkers about discovering the stories of people of colour. I'll be your host as we dive into the lives of thoughtful individuals who have maybe courted controversy but have definitely lived a life worth talking about. We'll be talking about the struggles, the triumphs and everything in between as we hear the experiences of people from all over the globe. We'll be getting to the root of what drives them, how they see the world and how the world sees them and how they've overcome the obstacles that life has thrown in their way. This is a podcast that will be an exploration and a conversation. So join us as we shine a light on the stories, struggles, and we look at the lives of people of colour. Please subscribe to it today, whether you're a brown person or not. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. My name is Royfield Brown. This is Mid-Atlantic and we are looking at a topic which we haven't looked at before. It's a topic which is important both sides of the Atlantic. That is the decline of local newspapers and local journalism. Today we're speaking to Catherine Bronsky, who is a reporter of some repute. She's written bylines for the Washington Post, for Wired, Mashable, you name it, Newsweek, it goes on and on. She knows of what she speaks when it comes to the topic of local journalism. And she wrote an article which says that maybe citizen journalism could well be the answer, but also that it comes with inherent problems. Catherine, how are you today? I am good. I wouldn't set it up like I know what I'm speaking of. I'm still guessing. <laughs> so I just want to keep <laughs> expectations low. But I know a little bit of what I speak of. Nobody absolutely does know, do they? Other than we know that local newspapers used to be an integral part of local civic identity, helping to expose corruption and following local politics in detail. However, over the last few decades, a series of milestones have led to the decline of newspapers. This decline is lamentable as it has led to the loss of local journalism and a decrease in the quality of local news coverage. Whilst social media giants have contributed to the decline of newspapers, they also have the potential to play a role in preserving them. The question we're going to ask today is how should that be done? First off, Catherine, you did a great article about citizen journalism. Why did you feel the need to write it? I felt the need to write it because I think there is, it's interesting because I think I see it as both as a good thing, but I also wanted to people not to get too ahead of themselves. And so I wanted to also put it out there as a bit of a warning because I see citizen journalism as 
a beacon of sorts, but people have been elevating it as something that is the answer to everything because distrust in mainstream journalism is really evaporated, right? Everyone likes to call it fake news, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there is a danger to that as well. So while I see it as an excellent way to give a lot of voices, especially to people on the ground, to local stories, look at something like the train derailment in East Palestine, for example. That would be an excellent kind of example of something that needed on the ground reporting and attention and would have been probably ignored by the mainstream media if you didn't have almost citizen journalists coming and really banging the pots and getting it attention. And I think that's an excellent example of something where it could really benefit from that or crowdsourcing information and crowd wisdom or having something like Clubhouse or Twitter spaces where people can come together and give their perspectives and their expertise. But at the same time, it's not always well informed. And you've also got the rise of independent journalism that's mixed into it, where people embrace that and like to support that, but often because it supports their biased views or their ideology. So it's not always so different from the mainstream in that way. And in fact, could be even more worrisome because it goes away from the pursuit of truth to more ideological places. So, and in terms of the funding models where even if it's being funded by individuals, you have this audience capture, right? If we go back to the last 30 years, the dawn of the internet as we know it now, have there been any significant turning points where you think we could have actually preserved a model that we recognised as being curated local news, which has some level of a multiplicity of local voices that come together and give us local news? Or is this just a case of, God damn it, you're going to have the internet, it's all about global scale, it's not local it was always going to happen. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think in many ways, the internet has really harmed local news. Community news was always financially in desperate <laughs> tires, right? The salaries for journalists working in sort of community papers were always very low. And it was starting place for a lot of journalists where salaries were like something like $30,000, $35,000, very low. But it was a great place to learn and really serve the community, I think in a much more authentic way than any other field, because it had direct impact on the community. Those are the people who sat in on the court cases and really did the work that had the most direct impact on individuals. And I think the least political of all as well. But when the internet came around, those community papers still exist in printed form. And they are online, but they suffered, I think, the most. And they really don't translate globally as much because people don't really care as much about community news. So I do think that financially they were the most hurt. I think local advertising still has some way of helping them sustain, but they just they didn't have the ways of monetization that that bigger papers had where they they were chasing clicks and local papers just can't chase them in the way that way because they're not producing those kinds of clickbait stories. In fact, they started producing some of those stories that actually have no relevance to the community. So they started diluting their content in many ways because they <laughs> needed to in order to somehow sustain themselves. Absolutely. And the decline of classified advertising in terms of newspapers was a major source of revenue in the past. And the rise of online classifieds has not necessarily dealt a death nail, but most definitely has been one of the key reasons why local newspapers aren't as viable as Huge, they used yeah. to be. So potentially, if we'd have realised back in the day what Google had the power to do to local journalism, maybe if we were a little bit more farsighted about it, we could have taxed them sufficiently to at least put some of that money back into funding local journalism. I, I don't know. But it is something which has most definitely led to the decline of local newspapers within the UK. 
the local UK newspaper industry, there's some quite shocking figures. In 1990, the average daily circulation of regional newspapers in the UK was 19.9 million. It's called it 20 million. By 2019, that's declined to 7.4 million, a drop of over 60%. And it's only getting worse. And that is mirrored by what's actually happening in, in the US. We don't make this all complete and utterly doom and gloom. When you have greater consolidation because of the lack of revenue within the space, what you get is less local people actually on that local beat. Newspapers tend to consolidate. They don't have enough local people, let's say, following the Spokane, Washington beat, so to speak. And then there are less authentic articles for local people to read. So it becomes a vicious cycle, doesn't it? What I've seen happening the most, so I live in Canada and in the U.S. it's happening too, but to a huge extent in Canada, you've got syndicated content everywhere. You almost have no papers at this point. So you basically have almost all of the content is done. You have one or two papers owning everything and then most of the articles are coming from them and you have maybe a few supplemental articles that are more localized and they have very few reporters so they laid off almost all their staff almost all the community papers that I kind of grew up with have gone out of business or are operating on a skeleton crew. So there's almost no one remaining in any of these more independent kind of papers. There's almost no one. And then, yeah, like most of the content is syndicated. I also worked in PR. And so I would if I were to pitch a story, you would, it would be interesting. You would have that one story picked out by the syndicate and then it would appear in 10 different papers, but it would be the same story. So it would, wouldn't even really have that much great PR value because it wouldn't be a unique story. It's like you're getting the same news from everyone and very little local storytelling. And the reporters that are still telling local stories, they're very limited as to how much they can tell. So like you're vying for attention, all these organizations have say it's an art story there's all these organizations vying for very limited space and so there's very little of that storytelling that's happening because it's maybe one reporter or two reporters in the whole city who are able to tell that story and then you've got in the u.s like you you're there's a lot more just because there's just a lot more media in general but a lot of them are also owned by the same umbrella and there's not that much diversity in general in just in terms of also thought. So you've got very similar types of stories happening within the same publications. But in terms of the community outlets, I haven't written so much in the U.S. within the community umbrella. So I have less of an understanding of that, but I do see them going away. And what I'm seeing more of is that a lot of the, those kind of storytelling is becoming more ideologically inclined because the only people who are able to cover it are more ideologically driven and that's how they're able to raise their funding. Should that really create a problem for us considering that radio has been partisan for quite some time, cable news has been partisan for quite some time? If local newspapers end up being as right or as left as cable news, Fox News, as opposed to MSNBC. Should we lament that? And this is just my opinion. Yes, because I think the problem is if people were to go, okay, I'm going to listen to this left-leaning station. I'm also going to listen to the right-leaning station or read this newspaper that's right and left-leaning. Then it wouldn't be so much of a problem because you have to recognize even if somebody's striving to be without bias, without ideology, you know, they're still going to have some. So if you recognize that and you read as much as of everything, then you get a mix and you get a more accurate representation, I think. But most people don't do it. And in fact, I've noticed so many people have this tendency to 
look at something that just fits within their frame and they say, this is the truth. These publications are actually pursuing the truth, where in fact, they're not. They're very like ideologically beholden. And it's sad, like I, people are just not able to really recognize because that publication is just going against whatever the narrative that they've become so accustomed to. And so in my ideal system, I would prefer publications to have to try and go for, quote unquote, the truth of something and do that by hiring writers that have a mix of ideologies and therefore creating a more balanced newsroom and keeping each other in check, I think you would get a better system in place where you're not like swaying too much to either side and editors, writers and editors. And so you would have editorial meetings where people hold each other a bit more accountable. And when it gets too biased one way or the other way, I think it will create a space that's a little bit more neutral or central and more dedicated to just the facts of something. Um, and maybe you write a story and you have a counter perspective, maybe you publish two different perspectives on something, mm. but you do it in the same paper. So people aren't as divided and fragmented, but instead you have an environment where I feel like people are reading they're like in two different universes, two different echo chambers, and they're living side by side, but not really. And I think it's actually creating further divisions in our world, and I don't think it's very healthy. I feel churlish thrown in my next question after the way you've just ended that, because I must admit, I do in wholeheartedly agree with you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Were newspapers, the way that we remember them now slightly with rose-tinted glasses... Were they just a, really just a period of their time before we had the personalization of media? And also where, specifically in the United States, where the country's just so blooming big, or Canada, for that matter, where you are, the country's just so blooming big that you couldn't really have true national newspapers. So hence, it was just a period of time and a period of technology and you know what? The world just does move on. We do have bulletin boards. We have Facebook groups around location. God damn it. So what? These things have actually gone. Yeah. And that's more of a statement than a question. But <laughs> as much as I, I don't believe in what I'm saying, I couldn't even think of a way of really nailing the landing there because I do believe they're incredibly important. But there is an argument to say that they were just moment in time which lasted from the middle of the 19th century as we understand them to the end of the 20th century move on you know what it's true i mean our world's changing ai is going to change also the way that we do journalism and news and things like that and everything is going to ultimately change but now i'm thinking about it too like as to your question or comment and i think what you're also getting at a bit is the nature of communities and in the past, let's say, everybody read the same newspaper and had this common ground, right? And everyone's like, oh, did you read the comic on page blah, blah, blah? Or did you read that feature? 
And there was this common reference point, and I think it was very useful to having this commonality, common ground that helped form bonds and communities and common understandings. And it was the same with like TV shows or movies, because people had this common reference point. So everybody watched Star Wars or watched, I don't know, All in the Family, whatever those shows were. And and now we have so many options and choices, so we don't have those shared reference points. And on the other hand, we have this gift of diversity of programs and choices of what to watch and everything for everyone. And in some ways, that's a wonderful thing, right? Because maybe people didn't see themselves reflected in, in, in all these other things, and now there's a niche for everyone. But it's a trade-off as well. And I, and something I think about a lot is the destruction, I think, of communities and what that has done to our society. And so as far as it goes with journalism, I think that in some ways has contributed because we have a, to, to that destruction because we don't have, because we have so many niches, even though we're seeing all this consolidation, there is a level of destruction because we don't have these common reference points, specifically with the internet where you're going online and you're not even reading the whole, you, you would read, I used to love reading the New Yorker and I'd read it from cover to cover. And especially since it was so expensive for me. So I really cared about that. And I'm clicking on one article that comes across me that's interesting. And then maybe I'll read another article from another publication. So we're reading in a really different way. And again, we don't have this cohesive experience with what we're with these publications. And that makes for a different in experience within our society where we don't have these common reference points. And so I think that really affects our kind of communal experience as a society. And our communities are, I think, are really smaller. We don't have that shared community experience in the same way we did. And it comes down to a lot of things beyond what we're reading, how we live and religious institution. I imagine, I think there's probably less people who attend those and relationships with neighbors and things like that. But this is an element of it and it's affecting our society. Couldn't agree with you more. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. If you're listening to this at home, you're one of the 5,000 that download each episode of this podcast. Why don't you download the Clubhouse app if you go and do that? By Magicadabra, you could actually be in the audience for one of the recordings of these rooms, which means that then you can raise your digital hand, come up on stage and ask a question to one of our eminent speakers. So download the Clubhouse app and you can be in the audience. What local newspapers did is create a sense of community, which is important for us to be looking at the same news. And that's not to say that we had to agree with it, but it actually reinforced something which I say is incredibly important, which is the commons, the common space where we are all aware of the same thing at the same time. Again, doesn't mean that we have to agree and what the solution is. But this is incredibly important in terms of democracy and forming a sense of, of community. If we are all siloed all the time, looking at new sources which are individually curated for us, we have less cohesion because we have less understanding of how other people might actually see something. Kind of just to that point, Catherine, I remember a few years back being shown that if you typed in the word Egypt, and Egypt was the specific example used, that because of your cookie trail that was put, the results that then came, was delivered to me, would be incredibly different, let's say, to somebody else. And whilst that sounds like great personalization, it's actually profoundly disturbing. If you have something as ubiquitous as Egypt, but we're not looking at the same set of common results. And I remember the, the example used there was that somebody got was the tourism board of Egypt. The next example that somebody else had was air attacks at Sharm el Sheikh. So it shows you how you can two people have a profoundly different view of the same topic because of personalization. I'm also rather disturbed by that. And more current, I guess, example of that would be even with AI, which is our new sort of 
search engine <laughs> in some ways. If you have a conversation with it and you ask it for details, it will also give you different results or answers based on who you are or, I don't know, based on something else. And so you're going to have a different interpretation of the world. That sort of difference, I think, the whole interpretation of the world, ultimately, where does it come from, right? It's built on your own personal experience, what you, what you experience. And then the rest of it, okay, maybe your friends, what your friends, your family, people you know around you tell you their experiences. And then the third is how, what you read about it or watch about it. And first of all, so what you mentioned, yes, like it could be different from person to person just based on your search results being different, which is astounding. And two, even just what you read, what are the sources that you're reading? What are you choosing to read? It could be completely different. Just because you read publication A and your friend reads publication B, you may have a completely different perception of situation C, right? And which one is the truth without you being there? How do you know? So at this point, Catherine, we're supposed to then pivot and you're supposed to tell me that citizen journalism and substacks are going to come and save local journalism, but not necessarily if I'm reading the article which you did some time ago. So tell us some of the pitfalls that we might f fall into if we believe that everybody being able to call themselves a journalist is going to be the panacea. Yeah, it's interesting because I might some people might call me a gatekeeper because of my views on this and have, probably have and behind my back and to my face because I've and I've had this conversation with some colleagues because there are people who vastly disagree with me because they think that anybody can be a journalist or rather it's not that I think that anybody can't become a journalist. To be in any quality, I suppose, as a journalist, you need to have some skills, some experience. So the idea that you can just write some tweets, as some have, and call yourself a journalist, I kind of disagree with that. And But people do this all the time. And people are very... Just whilst we're here, give us, let's say, three or four top traits that somebody who's truly a journalist needs to be able to have, whether it's in old school journalism in this new brave word of citizen journalism, to be able to call yourself a journalist. Give us the top, mm -hmm. let's say, three things which you absolutely need to be a bona fide journalist. I think distilling information taking complex information and distilling it in a way that's easy for people to understand would be one, and conveying it accurately, being able to access and assess good resources, experts, and being able to conduct interviews and having those skills to, to do an interview properly and ask the right questions. I think that's pretty key. Although some people might not, like I, I'm a journalist who is heavily based on interview skills. So that, that was something that I did a lot of interviews. Some journalists might do more like original reporting. So that's not necessarily the case for everyone. And I think, I guess like for me, I'm, so some journalists might be more broadcast journalists. So, so I guess it's not true across the board for everyone. That's a good question. I haven't thought about it in terms of just three skills. But I think critical thought thinking and analysis is a really big part of it but I think it's more so that when you have more experience like I'm not the journalist that I was when I was starting out and I had editors that I worked with who made me better because they made me question what I was writing and made sure that I was asking my, the right questions of my own work that I wasn't just putting things down and it doesn't mean that everything I write is perfect I make mistakes I did an interview recently where I felt like I screwed that one up it's not a pr perfect process but but I think the more you do it and the more you have like really good editors that you work with and on the job training the better you get and more trust you earn so some people can get good at it quicker than others too. So I don't want to have a specific criteria that's a 
gatekeeping criteria, but I think it's something that you do over time, you get better. But being able to distill information and gather information really well, to be critically thoughtful about it, not to have an agenda, which of course many journalists do, unfortunately, but that is something that I don't believe journalists should. One of the things that I took away from your article, which I thought was really quite important, that citizen journalists often lack the resources and the ability to verify information in the same way that professional journalists can, because those professional journalists are part of a news team. And also yeah. there's some level of fact checking doesn't always go on, but can go on, but doesn't with citizen journalism. And they also can be prone to bias and audience capture. And they're often driven by financial incentives to disseminate information quickly to please algorithms. That's spot on, isn't it? I don't know. I thought that was an excellent summary. But yes, I think the fact checking is a really big element of it. And this is something that troubles me, especially when people try to do things in real time with citizen journalism, especially in something like spaces. And they'll bring on people like pundits who will talk and they'll talk 500 words a second. And they'll give a lot of information or seemingly information and it'll be like error riddled. And it's not being checked. There's not enough research being done. That's something that like as a professional journalist, like you want to verify things before they go out there. You have that responsibility. And I see there's this kind of push to do to get things out really quickly, either when you're in a space or because you're pushing out content. And this happens, by the way, with mainstream outlets as well, that they push out information way too quickly. But I do think there's more of a checks and balances aspect to that. But fact checking is a big part. And also there is resources where you might have more sources that you can go to make sure that this information is correct. You might have more access to people higher up where they can verify if something is correct or not. So you make sure you don't just say, you're not just basing things on kind of rumors and innuendos as much. This should be true across for platform you're using to disseminate information. And yeah, the bias, I think, because these new kind of media outlets, they pop up because the only way for them to sustain is to have as independents, they, I think they have a harder time getting the same kind of advertising models going. And that's not necessarily always the best model anyways, but when their readers support it, their readers expect some there's a reason why they support them. And I think often it is because they support the ideology. So then they have that audience capture that is about the ideology. So if you even, even people who are personalities and they tweet, they're ideologically captured to an extent, right? Because if, even with me, I noticed if I tweet something and my audience doesn't like it, they get mad. And some people feel very uncomfortable with that because their audience turns on them. And so they'll never tweet anything that goes against the narrative of their audience. But the goal should always be just to tell the truth as you see it, regardless. Powerfully said. Uh, Now is the time, if you're in the audience, to raise your hand and uh, run up on stage. And uh, let's talk about local media in the social media age. Paul, you've been with us for the best part of an hour you're the first person to raise your hand. What is your point? Thanks, Roy Phil. I actually have a question for Catherine, if she could address it. So I'm wondering if you have a, an opinion or perspective on the role of some of these um, larger national media outlets and coming in and buying out small local broadcast stations in regional and smaller markets, along with the role of some of these larger venture capital funds in coming in and buying out small market newspapers and cashing them out and gutting them out for quick cash. Do you think there's a role to be played by maybe local or state level governments in blocking these transactions and in maybe local communities and trying to support them to block these sorts of transfers and contribute to the sort of larger generalization of our news media and moving them away from local coverage? Yeah, that's a very good question, Paul. I've been thinking about things like that a little bit because should the government in general, I think it's almost like, should the government support local news stations? In some ways, that's the question, because then the government has some power over these stations. 
but at the same time, by funding these stations, that they can do community service and be not be dependent on advertising, not have to necessarily provide content that's about chasing clicks or chasing. It's they can do stories that provide value to the community essentially, and that may be the only way to do that by having that government support. So how do you essentially separate the political side of it, I guess, from the financial side? And I've talked to some people in the in Europe where they have done something similar. So they have a similar, like a committee where they do it. So it's not coming from a political party. Because for example, in Canada, there's a specific political party that supports all the media and locally. And so there is such a strong affiliation between politics, political party, and the stations. And so I think it's problematic, but how do you like separate it? So I think maybe establishing a different model for that support might be a good idea. So I, I can see the value in that. So maybe reimagining how that funding is distributed where it's not tied into a particular political party, but rather maybe a committee that's maybe mixed bipartisan or something like that might be one way to do it. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I think otherwise, I do think that probably you would have continue seeing that pattern of these stations just being gutted and you just don't have stations that serve the community because I just don't think financially it, it probably makes so much sense. Just on a very similar point, Australia in 2021 passed a new law that required digital platforms like Facebook and Google to pay local media outlets and publishers to link to their content. The whole thing was sold to not just to local newspapers, but to the media that of course, if you give your if the headlines are hoovered up by these great platforms that then you get meaningful traffic back. But actually what happens and we all know this, we just skim the headlines and we actually the vast majority of us don't actually then click on the headlines, which then takes us to that news source, whether it's local or national at all. News aggregation in and of itself sold as a way of giving traffic to news sites, but actually is one of the reasons what, which is actually killing news sites. But thank you for that question, Paul. Philip Denver, you're up next, sir. What's your question? Yeah, but one of the things that I find interesting is that when the collapse of the local newspapers happened in local news reporting, a lot of it revolved around just basically the online presence of getting the news from local newspapers online. But there was no real adaption on a lot of those local newspapers, and it was too late by the time they started closing. So there seems to be a market for this news, but there doesn't seem to be a good market locally on how to capture people in front of that. And the only only difference I'd say is NPR seems to have a good model on capturing local news where I live. I don't know if it'll work everywhere, but are, are the NPR type models, it doesn't have to be NPR, obviously, but are the NPR type models viable in, into the future for local news? Catherine, what do you reckon? So NPR, because they're local, I think there is something to it. Because of the recent issue with Elon labeling NPR as state media, I looked into NPR funding and saw that although NPR itself gets not that much funding, NPR affiliate stations, so the local stations do get a lot more. So they are so quite dependent on government funding again. So they're only sustainable if the government gives them a fair bit of support. Though I guess they also get some advertising and some sponsorships from from different organizations. So I think people care locally. People listen to local stations quite a bit when they're on their drives and things like that. So I think they are sustainable because I think people care locally. But I don't know for financially that they're like money making entities necessarily. So I think if they're not getting governmental assistance, are they really sustainable? There's some stations that get... Go ahead, Philip. Let me ask you a quick question, because when I was a kid, you'd pull the the newspaper up, you'd have your local news, and then you'd have the Associated Press pushed into it as well. I guess my question is, why don't you see more of that within local news anymore, where you see they cover the local stuff and then they bring in the national stuff as well? 
to me, it seems like I have to go to bigger publications to get the national news. I used to just read one newspaper to get all of my news. Is there a reason why local outlets don't do both? So the idea being that they would put in the bigger publications, the national publications would put in the community section. You would see like the Associated Press and different things like that within like the Denver Post. You would see reporters that were on the national stage getting published in the Denver Post. I just don't see that anymore. Yeah, I imagine it's financial licensing and because so much is online as well, but I'm not sure that I know 100% the answer to that question. It could be an interesting thing to explore for some of the licensing for like for the national publications to maybe license some of the more community and in some of the areas. But there might be a cost involved in like even just putting the physical drafts inside of the papers and distributing those and then the cost of adding it to their papers. But I'm not 100 percent sure. So I'm not. I wonder. As an adjunct to to Philip's point, if I look at KQED, which is the NPR affiliate for San Francisco and the Bay Area, they do radio, they do TV. What's stopping them, apart from just legacy, but jumping in bed with the San Francisco crumbs? I'm trying to remember what the San Francisco... There you go, San Francisco Chronicle. I nearly forgot the name. And really, maybe how all of these platforms become self-sustaining, all these newspapers, sorry. There you go. I didn't exactly bury the lead. I exposed it there. How all these newspapers become relevant and profitable is by becoming verticals, that actually the San Francisco Chronicle is in bed with KQED. So they, they have the news reporters on the ground who are also doing the radio stuff are also doing the print stuff and also doing the TV stuff. Technology, and we haven't, and we've barely mentioned AI, you've mentioned it a couple of times. It means that one person can do much more that, than ever before. And then, and maybe you have a cost center, but also a brand, a local brand, which stands up against many digital platforms. I don't know, maybe come back to it, but we have David, Daniel, and the quite an impressive name the david what is your question yeah before i say that the chronicle is owned by hers they get a lot of funding all right so that helps them out but one of the things that you discussed is how activism can get into journalism and i'm going to lead to a question here their city side which is in the bay area which runs both the oakland side and the original platform they did the berkeley side the berkeley side was doing real good at crime reporting in terms of giving you all the detailed information you needed to know about things that were happening. And the editor and the crime beat reporter left. The crime reporting started to get a little bit more activacy. The information started to get more vague. And the former crime reporter started her own platform called Berkeley Scanner, in which she seems to have a good relationship with people in the local police officer. And we're getting all the information for the people. They get all the information you need to know about what's going on. And she seems to be very accurate in that. So uh, I'd like you to comment a little more about what you think about the sort of negative side when active, when people who are activism gets into journalism. Sure. That's became the bait of my existence. Now, it's interesting because, I mean, it's certainly people in journalism have always had some ideological leanings, but there was an accepted way of doing journalism that was about striving for a certain level of objectivity, at least on the surface. And now I know that in my peer group, that especially with younger journalists, there is this trend of they call themselves activist journalists. So it's not even hidden in any way. So there's, there is even in terms of those types of stories that people choose to do, they are drawn more towards covering stories from a particular angle and covering certain kinds of beats and stories because they want to raise awareness of particular issues. And so there is a slant to it. So it's really a lot of the stories I feel now belong in the opinion section of papers instead of like features or certainly news. The news to me should answer the basic questions of what happened to the five W's. And but now they just they have a lot of spin to them. And journalists do see their responsibility in that. In fact, they think it's a failure to not do that. And so there is a 
fight, I feel like right now, between the old school journalists and journalism and the new school of journalism, which is the more activist class of journalists. And you see that sort of in a lot of newsrooms, and I hear about that a lot, and I've faced off some of that myself. And that seems to be a war that's happening quite a bit lately. And there is, and I think the readers are not liking the activist journalists very much, but some are. And, but I think it's what's causing a lot of distrust in journalism. So there's some, in some newsrooms I hear are reconsidering their positions, even in very large newspapers. And some are just proceeding as usual. So I think a lot of it depends also on the age and demographics of the of the journalists, specifically age being the main factor, because they've come out of a different kind of philosophical alignment. And so the ideology is a bigger component as to what has driven them towards journalism. They're there to expose things, drive attention to certain issues. Thank you for the little bit of local colour which you gave to the Bay Area when I was even struggling to remember the name of the San Francisco newspaper, which is, of course, owned by the Hearst family, which was which it even shows you on, on my kind of personal level the decline of such a great august institution, which is the San Francisco Chronicle. It's a pale shadow of, it, of, of its former self, if you just look at it in terms of just the amount of pagination within it, let alone its local cultural impact. Catherine, let's leave the last word to you and let's try and be upbeat. I started this by saying that not only did local newspapers give us a sense of local civic identity, specifically within the UK, different local newspapers or even different colours. You had the sports newspaper, which came out on a Saturday, which was always pink. And then you had the Sunday newspaper, etc. And these were real local kind of institutions which helped shine a light on local corruption, local crime, local politics, then ex explained things in, in a way that seems to be lost. There are problems with citizen journalism, but put some wind in ourselves. Give us a positive view of the future whereby local news is still going to be of some level of importance because without journalists politicians can get away with murder and the fourth estate is incredibly important in any democracy oh my gosh a positive view of local journalism i will i will do my best now, I think people will always be interested in local journalism because it tells stories about the, their community. And it's honestly, I think it's probably the most important kind of journalism or one of the most important. And I don't see it going away entirely because it's the, it's most it has the most direct most quick effect on 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 the community it serves. So what I see happening, I think with the internet as well, is you'll see more attention being given to certain stories because it can spread more quickly and perhaps even put more pressure. I think earlier in our conversation, I, for example, cited East Palestine story that was not getting that much attention. And then as a result of just some people, not even in East Palestine, ha putting a lot of caring about the story, and covering it on social media, putting up videos. And there's one guy I know named Nick Sorter who like drove to East Palestine and just shot footage and talked to people in town and just wouldn't let the story go. Got a ton of attention, which got a lot of media attention and for national media attention that forced a lot of outlets to pay attention. Also politicians. I think in that way, it, it allows stories that are more about communities that are more community centric to explode and then i think we are going to have to rethink about how we fund community stations and community papers because i do think i'm in some ways i'm a capitalist but in some ways i do believe there's levels of support that can come from government just as long as there's no political attachments there and so i think there could be room for support there from foundations or things like that. I think also from the community itself, perhaps, I think we need to look at different funding models for community papers. 
And I think technologically, we touched a little bit, or at least I brought up AI into it a little bit. I don't think AI is at a place where it's going to replace journalists, which I'm happy about, but it can be a tool that journalists can use and where resources for community reporting are very scarce. What it can do is, for example, who's a reporter could go into the community, get in the facts input and have the AI help generate the news report where it's not so much about fancy words, but it's about getting the report out quickly. So it could be a really good aid. So I think combining like different financial models, some probably government support and getting international pressure and support from media and being able to like allow content to go viral more easily than in the past, as well as some technological advancements, I think are going to potentially elevate how community reporting is done and then and have more people invested in it than before because it used to be just so localized and now I think it has the potential to reach many more eyeballs and have more people care than before. I hope that's positive enough. Absolutely is positive and just to underline the importance of local media, George Santos probably the most controversial congressperson in the 2023 intake it was the local newspaper the north shore leader that actually first exposed him as being a serial liar but because it was the north shore leader national press didn't take up the story and it led to him not only being elected but then the farrago which then happened afterwards so there still is an important place for the fourth estate locally catherine Wow, it's interesting. One of the ways that one sneaky way to generate story ideas is actually one hot tip for journalists is look at community papers and what stories have been done by papers that are smaller and then try to see what has the potential to be a bigger story. So there's a lot of, it's like a gold mine often, these stories. Actually, I think I've done one of those where it was like a smaller story and in a community paper and then I stole it. I didn't steal it, but made it into a bigger story. Gotcha. Daniel, if you can quickly get your question out in the next 30 seconds in terms of making it really cogent, punchy, maybe Catherine can answer it in a cogent and punchy way and we can wrap the show up. Daniel, over to you. All right. My question is with the rise of Substack and independent news, how do we make that more geared towards local media? Oh, that's interesting. It's I'm a fan of Substack, but it hasn't been very localized at all because <laughs> so I don't know if we can. I think Substack would have to technologically change things around a fair bit and make some they would have to basically create some sort of a category for cities in order to do that, which maybe they will. So that's something for them to consider. Maybe I'll talk to them about it. Just on that note, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, it could well be the Manchester Gazette in, in the UK, but there is, or it's Manchester World, it's one or the other. They reckon that they're going to turn a profit this year off purely subscriptions, and they have, I think, eight local journalists within Manchester in, in the UK, and it very much is like substacky type of journal and they publish was it two news letters a week as well as having the online publication and specifically people actually subscribe and pay for the one newsletter i think what substack has shown is that people are willing to pay and support there's nothing that stops people for, from creating something that's more localized so they can absolutely do it it's just the discovery they would have to build it on their own but they can do it and they can even print like business cards and go to i don't know local events and bake sales and build it one by one so there's no, nothing that stops them from doing it or going radio stations and do it that way so they can build the audience and people have absolutely shown the willingness to pay which is I think Substack did a good job of building that kind of community, although certainly more people on Substack are free subscribers. There's so many. I know lots of people on Substack that have um, 
they get hundreds of thousands of dollars from subscriptions. I also know people who, stingly enough, I assumed that most of their content was behind paywalls, but discovered that in fact, it's not, and people still choose to pay, even though their content is all available for free, which is remarkable. So there's this sense of people really appreciating the content and valuing what the writers do. So maybe there's something to this culture that I think could work very well with the community newspaper aspect. I think people are willing, even with something, I'm not a big fan of what Wikipedia has become, right? But remember when they were asking for a dollar or five dollars, and if there's enough people willing to pay that, if you ask for a small enough amount, but you have enough people, it can be very sustainable in some cases. If you're offering a real service, especially where it's something that has such deep ties to the community, there's certainly a lot of potential in that. I don't know whether we're almost, in, in a weird way, almost become full circle with one of the first things that you said was that local journalists were always relatively under-renumerated back in the days of when newspapers were thick, plentiful and local. One of the problems with the whole Substack model in terms of local is scale, isn't it? It's one thing if you're going to write about, let's say, US politics or global politics invariably everybody in your language group globally is potentially interested in what you have to say and so you can get wider subscriptions whereas if you're writing something specific about i don't know spokane in washington or some small town in idaho that's hardly global in scale so hence it's much harder to monetize no but if i guess if it's a nation you're very and you have very dedicated readers I guess the thing is you don't need that many. If you have a thousand people, that's what, $50,000 or maybe a little bit more than that, which is already bigger than most of this stuff. So it's, it's not that, it's a little bit more viable than many others. Like usually with a newsletter, with if you only had a thousand readers, there's no way that an advertising model would work. That's way too small. I had a website in the early 2000s that had 600,000 visitors a month and I wouldn't make that. So it's a lot more doable, I think, than than even a community paper. But that's for one person. It just depends on what you're doing. There's just more options than there were before. Catherine Brodsky, tell us where people can find your Substack and your other goodly works on the interwebs. <laughs> My goodly works. My Substack is randomminds.substack.com or my name, katherinebrodsky.substack.com. Both of these work. And I am also on Twitter until Elon Musk gets really mad at me for criticizing him. Not attacking, criticizing. And um, Mysterious Cat, K-A-T, on Twitter. And what are you working on at the moment? Oh, I'm just writing a lot of articles. And there is another top, se uh, top secret project I can't talk about until next year. And also I have a podcast myself, not very different from yours, but it's called Forbidden Conversations, where I talk to people about sometimes controversial topics, but very mild-mannered, <laughs> civil conversations around those topics. There you go. I'll be downloading that later. There you go, folks. That has been me, Royfield Brown, with Catherine Brodsky, talking about local news in the social media age and if it can stay afloat and if it can stay relevant. As I said so, about an hour ago, the Fourth Estate is incredibly important in any truly functioning democracy that works on a national level most definitely but it needs to be able to continue to work on a local level so that's why local journalism local newspapers are incredibly important so we can hold local councillors local politicians actually to account as well as the national ones let's hope that there is a business model which is going to make sense for local media not just local newspapers, but for local radio and TV going forward, because we here at Mid-Atlantic do believe in the public space, the commons where people can agree to disagree, but actually do discuss the issues of the day. And as we always say, left of centre politics is right thinking politics, but we don't demonise and berate our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We try and bring them over the strength of our argument 
That's what we do here at Mid-Atlantic. And on that note, if you want to berate me, slag me off, throw brickbats at me, you can do that at royfield at gmail.com. I will read them, and if I need to course correct, I will do that. However, if I need to stick to my principles, I will absolutely do that as well. Don't forget, good people, one of the ways you can support this podcast is not by giving us your hard-earned cash. We don't need that on Mid-Atlantic, but what we do need is your positive reviews. If you think this podcast is worth snuff, go on to Apple Podcasts, write positive review, and you know what? It'll make me feel good, but more importantly than that, it'll get us up those iTunes charts so we'll have more listeners for the podcast. We need to increase it from those 5,000 per episode, so you can help us by doing that, by going on to Apple Podcasts, writing a positive review. That'll be most awesome. Look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. Take care. Toodaloo. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.